Good morning, Cross Point. I am uh, Darren Gundy. I'm going to read our scripture. Uh, it is in Acts 11, verses 19 through 26 uh, in the CSB translation. Uh, if you have a Bible or device, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, while you're getting there, uh, I'm Darren Gundy. Uh, my wife, Kelsey, and I have been coming to Cross Point for almost eight years. Uh, we became covenant members shortly after. Uh, we have three kids, Janelle, four, and then twins, Hallie and Paxton, who are 10 months old. Uh, we are also part of the Funk Community Group, and we uh, help out with worship occasionally. Uh, so let's hear God's word. Acts 11, 19 through 26. <clears throat> now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as, uh, Fessa, uh, sorry, I had my notes here, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Bar Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord who, with devoted hearts, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Darren. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and get there. We're going to be looking at uh, all the way through verse 30 in chapter 11 today. If you don't have a good Bible... Uh, get one at Guest Connections, let that be our gift to you, but uh, if, you're not, if you're new to reading the scriptures, the Gospel of Luke would be a great place to begin reading and understanding who Jesus is and his work and his ministry. When our kids were growing up, one of the little momisms or heatherisms that, uh, that my wife would tell our kids, and if you're a parent, you probably have a three-ring binder of some of these things, um, in your head at least, probably not written down. But one of them was, be a salmon, she would tell our kids. And what she meant by the phrase was, swim upstream. Don't settle uh, and give in or swim downstream with culture, but stand firm in the faith. Trust in the Father who loves you. Swim against the current of the world that is swimming, prone, prone to swim downstream toward the love of sin and self. Granted, she never talked about how the bear eats the salmon when you swim upstream because it doesn't fit the illustration. We just focus on swimming upstream, okay? Two of, our, two of our attendees today would attest to probably hearing that phrase. But believers in Christ are called to live counterculturally, different than how the world lives. Why? Why, though? Well, because we've been made new in Christ. We've experienced spiritual rebirth. We were dead in our sin. Now by faith in the Lord, by grace alone, we've been given resurrection life. We've been brought into a new kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, but a heavenly, eternal kingdom. And our heavenly citizenship is not a reality that, that just takes place in the future, but it is a present-day identity that shapes all of life. So brothers and sisters in Christ, when you're living for a new kingdom, then your life will look different than those who live for the kingdom of sin and self. When your identity is now in Christ and the activity of your life will flow in a way toward the worship of Jesus who died and rose again for you and not downstream 
New identity leads to new activity. This is the pattern we are seeing as we prayerfully walk through the book of Acts. Today is the 20th message in this series. We are in this book until August of this year. One of my prayerful hopes as we walk through it is that we'd be encouraged in how our brothers and sisters in the early New Testament church walked and lived by faith, how they lived out their identity in Christ, and as a result, they were a countercultural presence in the world. In today's passage, we see just that. To the degree that the people in the city that are watching the way of life of the people of God give them a new name, a name that they... believers do not give to themselves, but the watching world gives to them because to the world, they're not fitting into the categories of the world. So they had to come up with a new name that we readily use today that originally was intended to mock believers. It's a name that has gotten so vague in this world that we need to be reminded of what it really means. The last couple weeks, we've been in Acts 10 and 11. We've seen the disciple making a mission of Jesus go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the last couple chapters see it reach not just those from a Jewish background, but those from a Gentile background crossing ethnic lines. Verse 19 again, Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way up as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, here's a map up there, Lord willing. Yes, fantastic. Uh, But give you a sense of where we're talking about here. Antioch is up there to the right. So the persecution that started because of Stephen is is referring to this uh, Acts 7 in Jerusalem. We looked at that passage at the end of last year. But Stephen, a servant leader in the church, is brought before Jewish religious leadership that are intent on stopping the name of Jesus from being proclaimed. Stephen then testifies to who Jesus is, which enrages the leadership, which leads to the stoning of Stephen and his death. Then Luke writes this at the beginning of Acts 8, verses 1 through 3. Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So two takeaways, Saul and scattering. First of all, Saul enters the scene as one who is seeking to destroy the church and its people. But by God's grace, by God's mercy and power, Saul is humbled and confronted by the Lord Jesus in Acts 9 and becomes a follower and a disciple of Jesus. Later in, that, later in this passage that we're looking at today, Saul is now, we'll see him actively seeking to strengthen and build the church rather than destroy it because he's been changed from the inside out. There, there's a new identity which leads to a radically different activity in, in Saul's way of life. And secondly, as a result of this persecution, believers in Jerusalem are being scattered, scattered throughout the larger region, seeking refuge in various places with significant Jewish populations, and Antioch is one of those places. And so persecution, to the name of Jesus, has driven disciples from Jerusalem. And yet I love this, they continued to speak the word. They continued to testify to the gospel. 
the proclamation of the person work of Jesus is leading to significant persecution. It's leading to death for some, and yet they cannot help but speak of the name of Jesus. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. The Lord can redeem even the evil of persecution because He's sovereign, He's good. He can redeem the evil to bring about good for others, to bring about His purposes, His glory. For the risen Jesus, whose name is above every other name, has promised He will be with His people to the very end of this age, no matter the circumstance. These believers go out testifying to new regions. And yet, Luke writes, they're only proclaiming the name of Jesus to the Jews they encounter. They're not telling of Jesus to Gentiles, which again shows how significant the racial divide was between Jew and Gentile and how important it is that we know that the church knew then, but we know as well that the gospel crosses all ethnic lines. The gospel crosses all socioeconomic lines. Verses 12, or 20 and 21. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, or Gentiles, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So these witnesses for Jesus, they were from a Hellenistic background, meaning they had not grown up in Jerusalem. They'd grown up Jewish, but not in the city. And so they'd grown up in a different region, and so they were more inclined or willing to cross racial or ethnic lines. They were more aware of the Gentile or Greek culture, having grown up outside of Jerusalem. And so they, they come to Antioch, and they begin speaking of Jesus to the Gentiles. This is the first example in Acts of a mission focused on reaching Gentiles. What began in Cornelius' house in Acts 10 is now spreading outward. Tim Keller calls these disciple-making men from Cyprus and Cyrene, he calls them mavericks. John Stott calls them daring spirits. Why? Well, because they were willing to cross lines that the culture had drawn. Because the gospel crosses over those lines. They didn't disengage or withdraw from the culture, but they engaged the people with the good news. Nor did they blend in with the world and fall into the worshiping of multiple Greek gods, for example. To use the words of Jesus in John 17, they were in the world on a mission. They were not of the world. They were in the world on a mission. They weren't going to hunker down and bomb shelter it, nor were they going to blend in and swim downstream toward the love of sin and self. Keller calls them mavericks because that is how the world at the time would have seen them. And yet, I don't think these missionaries the night before were thinking, all right, let's go be mavericks, guys. Instead, they simply said, we're going to be obedient. We're going to be obedient. Which to the world seems radical. It seems like a maverick. But it's simply spirit-empowered obedience to the words of Jesus. I love this. Luke simply writes, but there were some of them. We don't even know the names of these daring spirits. How beautiful and fitting not formally trained, ordinary disciples who are indwelt with the spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, whose lives reveal that they abide in Jesus, they're loved by the Father, the outcome of their ministry in Antioch will have ripple effects in the kingdom around the globe for years, including to this day. 
and we don't know their names. Because ultimately, it isn't about their name, or your name, or most certainly, my name. It's about the name of Jesus Christ. Our names recorded in the Scriptures, yes, names are difficult to pronounce, names that repeat themselves. But consider this, Jesus said, of those born of a woman, so all of human history, there was no one greater than John the baptizer. And John himself said, he prayed, as recorded in John 3, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. So if the guy on the top of the depth chart for all humanity says that, then we are reminded it's ultimately not about our name, but the name of Jesus. We want our lives, our words, our love, our thoughts to make much of him. John Stott said this, some of the most significant work for the kingdom has been done by unknown witnesses who are obedient to Christ right where they are and where they do not attract much attention. The gospel of God's grace is what unites and brings us together. If it was the gospel of works, man, we'd be obsessed. We'd be obsessed with trying to boast in our name and doing the opposite of what John the baptizer prayed. A sure sign of someone being unfit for the kingdom Someone who would do far more harm than good in the kingdom is someone who is obsessed with their name and not obsessed with the name of Jesus. Who is not praying John the Baptizer's prayer, prayer or flipping it. D.L. Moody said this, that I'm glad we're saved by grace and not by good works because I don't want to sit in heaven and listen to everybody brag for eternity about how they got there. Amen to that. Rather, for all eternity, we will boast in one name. Jesus, the spotless, perfect Lamb who is sacrificed in our place, who sits on the throne. By the grace of God, I pray we might be a people, a collection of unknown witnesses who are obedient to Christ right where we are in whatever capacity we serve in the body, with whatever gifts of the Spirit that we have, with whatever personalities the Lord has wired us with for significant kingdom work can be done. It has been done. It will be done through such a collective, unified, obedient, faith-filled, humility-pursuing family of God. Tony Morita said this, we must not confuse popularity with significance. We must not confuse popularity with significance. That's a good word for whatever year we're in, whether we're talking book of Acts or present day. The church at Antioch got started because so-called nobodies witnessed to their neighbors. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the church at Antioch was born. Antioch was the third greatest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. The population estimated of hundreds of thousands. The city was a place of sophistication and business. It sat at a crossroads of trade it was a melting pot of cultures, so you had Greeks and Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Asians, Indians. It was a city with a, a lot of commercial interests and cosmopolitan interests, and it was an utterly pagan and ungodly city. Overtly in the city was the deliberate public pursuit of, of sexual immoral pleasure, and so the city was dark. And yet, 
the Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. For in the words of John 1, verses 4 and 5, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The Lord's hand refers to His power. That His power is what enabled not only the witnesses, but it enabled those who were receiving the gospel to receive it, to believe and turn to the Lord. Kingdom work is never done in the strength and power of the people, but in the strength of the power of the king of the kingdom. We plant, we water, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, but God causes the growth. Paul also writes in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek or the Gentile. It's the Lord's hand that saves. It's the Lord's hand that brings revival or the planting of a church or the strengthening or building up of a church. We're called not to try to manipulate the Lord, for that's impossible. Rather, we are called as God's people to a prayerful dependence in all of life, trusting in His unchanging, sovereign character and His might and His faithful hand. And the Lord's hand blessed the witnesses of these disciples who were on mission to the Greeks in Antioch, and a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles is born. Verses 22 and 20, 22 through 24. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a large number of people were added to the Lord. The Jerusalem church sends Barnabas 300 or so miles up to Antioch. Because the Jerusalem church has some concerns about the expansion of the kingdom to the Gentiles. We saw that earlier in chapter, in last week in chapter 11. We'll see that again. That subject hit the, hit the table again in Acts 15. It will be resolved at that point. And so they send someone here from the church who they trust who can see what the church is, what the Lord is doing and verify that it's the Lord's hand at work and it's not man's manipulation. And Barnabas is not an apostle, and yet, as Luke describes him, he's a good man, meaning he's a godly man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was a man known for his generosity from Acts 4. He was the one who gave a hospitable and warm welcome to Saul following his conversion. His name meant son of encouragement. And, and on top of all that, he's from Cyprus, which means he's come from a Hellenistic background. And he'd be able to relate, relate better to both the Jew and the Gentile than those from the Jerusalem church. And when he arrived, he saw the grace of God. He saw evidences of the Lord's hand and power. That the reality that the people were repenting and believing in Jesus was a supernatural work of the Lord. For it's always the power of God, not the power of man at work in salvation. That hasn't changed. This is one reason on a weekly basis in our program, we talk about evidences of God's grace. We try to remain watchful as a church to see how our supernatural God is at work through this family of faith. It brings joy. It spurs us on when we remain watchful and account for and attest and testify to these evidences. So he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. The son of encouragement saw a bunch of people who were filled with the Spirit, and so there was fruit of the Spirit in their life. And so he saw 
a group of people. He saw love and joy, peace, patience that, that wasn't like the path of the, the way of Antioch, but it was a supernatural work. He saw kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control that revealed the Lord's hand at work. And at the same time, Barnabas saw brothers and sisters in Christ who needed to be encouraged to grow in their devotion to Jesus, to remain steadfast in their love for the Lord. Barnabas saw work yet to be done, that the people needed teaching, equipping, encouraging, and Barnabas was unwilling to neglect the people or the health of the church because neglect leads to poor growth. Neglect leads to poor growth. We see that in babies. We see that in children. We see that in your winter plants that have died. Just go ahead and throw them out. We see that in our physical bodies. Neglect leads to poor growth. And such is the case in the local church. And so Barnabas thinks to himself, I know a guy. I know a guy. I know a brother in the Lord who can come join me in the work of shepherding and overseeing God's people who can join me as a teacher, a discipler, an equipper, an encourager of God's people who can help build and strengthen this young church. Verses 25 and 26, then he, he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. It was Acts 9 where we read of Saul being sent off to Tarsus, his hometown, as a place of refuge from persecution. So it's been about 8 to 12 years since that moment. Barnabas could have made it about himself. He really could have. He could have made it about his, his own little work there. But he welcomed, he pursued a co-laborer. He knew the church would be, would be better served with a plurality of leaders and gifts, and so he leaves Antioch knowing it will be worth it if he can get additional help. Kingdom ministry is most effective when the whole body is joined together and each member of the body doing each of their parts. This is a picture that Paul paints for us in 1 Corinthians 12. It's what he paints for us in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And Ephesians 4 says this, And he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From Him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Barnabas and Saul are committed to stay with the Antioch church for a prolonged time so that the church might not be tossed to and fro, might not be deceived by every little false teaching, but rather so they might grow up into Jesus who is the head of the church, so that when they depart someday, when Paul and Barnabas depart someday, that the church will continue to flourish and thrive because it's built not on human leaders, but it's built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. I'm grateful for the plurality of leaders here at Crosspoint, from paid or unpaid elders and staff, or elders and pastors to our staff, 
for our community group leaders, for teachers and sun chasers and hype and C20, for various servant leaders in front of the scenes, behind the scenes, servant leaders who are committed to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus who live devoted to him, dedicated to one another, and driven to reach people. The mission is worth it because the people the Lord is at work in are worth it. And the one whose hand is enough, who sits on the throne, is worthy. And in Antioch, a church is born, it's taught, it's strengthened. Out of the darkness of the city comes a church whose members have a wide variety of ethnic backgrounds. John Stott said this, No more appropriate place could be imagined either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission that the church, then the church at Antioch. And we see in Acts 13, the church be that sending church, a mission-sending church. Out of darkness, out of a darkness of a city comes a church that is committed to being a light to the world through the mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the way of life for the church was so foreign to the city that they began to call them Christians a name that is new to the people of God. In Latin, the I-A-N at the end means uh, the party of. And so in this case, it was those people are, are, are of the party of Jesus. They are Jesus people. So it was a name intended ultimately to mock the followers of Jesus. As one commentary wrote, Antioch was famous for its readiness to jeer and call names, but the name stuck because it was a proper reflection of the people. And so the name was intended to mock in the sense of, oh, look at you little Christ. Look at you little Jesus people trying to swim upstream, be like Jesus. Look at how you're generous toward those in need. Look how you eat with people that are not like you. Well, you're not following the patterns of this, of this world. In many ways, the, the city thought, well, you grew up Jewish, but you're confessing Jesus as the Messiah. Or you grew up Gentile, but, but you're not worshiping Zeus. You're not bowing down to Aphrodite. Well, we've got to come up with a new name for you. We need a new name because you're in a new category that doesn't fit the patterns of this world. And we, here in our present day, need to rediscover what it means to actually be Christian, according to the New Testament, and not according to the world. Here are four broken or false ways that the term Christian gets defined in our day. The first is, you're a Christian by default, meaning, well, I'm not Jew, I'm not Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not an atheist, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, so forth, so I'm a Christian. As if it's a question on a survey with 10 answers. And you must choose one. If you don't choose one, then you have to answer the question. So I guess I'm this. So we assume to be a Christian is by default. The next one is you're a Christian because you believe there's a God. And yet that was Cornelius in Acts 10. He needed the gospel. He needed to repent and believe. He did not have the Holy Spirit of God because he had not put his faith in the Lord. James 2.19 tells us that demons believe there's a God and yet nobody would look at a pack of demons and say, hey, there's some Christians. 
The next one is you're a Christian because of your family background or ethnic heritage. I grew up in church. I'm a, and then you fill in the blank of whatever denomination you want to throw in or lack thereof. I grew up blank. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents were Christian. My, my dad or granddad was the pastor. I'm from the Midwest, for Pete's sake. I'm from America. I'm white. I'm black. I'm Hispanic. And so forth. So we assume we're a Christian because of our ethnic heritage or our family background or our generational tree. The last false way of defining the term Christian is that I want to mention today, I'm sure there's several others, but that you're a Christian because of your, your religious good works. I attend a church service sometimes. Like I walk in that building. I walk in that building anytime the doors are open. I walk in that building twice a year. I went to Sunday school growing up. I know what a flannel graph is. I got baptized as a baby. I got confirmed. I went through confirmation. I went to summer camp. I went to ice camp. I went to fall camp. I went to all the camps. I give of my money. You see how generous I am? I just did my taxes. I give of my money. I'm a moral person who avoids certain sins. I serve at the church. You see how silly it is when we try to resume build? It's silly. Loved ones, some of you are believing such lies and defining yourself as Christian in unbiblical ways. In ways that are false that won't lead to abundant or eternal life. And some of you have been doing this possibly for decades. If you say, well, sure, I'm a Christian, but you'd balk at terms like, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, wanting my life to reflect His life. I'm a believer in the Son of God and live in submission. You, you, do, you, do, you use the word submission to Him. I'm a disciple of Jesus seeking to become like Him. I'm a worshiper of Jesus seeking to worship Him in all of life. If you'd gladly check the Christian box on the survey but not put a check by some of those terms, then friends, you don't understand what it means to be a Christian. And I want you to understand because it has eternal significance. If the Lord who loves you is saying to you, that's you, then don't resist Him. Welcome Him. Respond to Him in prayer. Call out to Him. He will save. He's faithful. He's just. He's good. Verses 27 through 30. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So the Spirit enables Agabus, a prophet, to predict a famine is coming, a famine that will hurt the church and the family of God in Judea. The famine has not taken place yet, and here the church at Antioch is preparing for it, not through hoarding, but through generously giving of their resources, according to their ability for the benefit, the support of others, including those from a different ethnic or racial background. Because the church of Jesus Christ are a new people, 
called to live in a new way by the grace of God and through His Spirit, a way of life that is countercultural, that stands out from, that swims upstream from the patterns of this world in such a way where, that where the world may mock, our Lord will be magnified. So the world can mock day in and day out. Our Lord will be magnified. For it is our joy. It is a gift to bear His name in all of life. May we be a people who are dependent upon Him, His hand, His power at all times and all seasons. Who are seeking to make much of His name and not ours. Who are encouraging one another to remain true with devoted hearts to Jesus all by grace. Who are generous toward those in need within the family of God, within the kingdom. A people together bringing Him glory through our everyday, ordinary, unseen, and seen lives. Lord, we pray that Your hand would be on Your church here and locally through church plants like Redeemer and Partridge Point and regionally, nationally, and around the world from Reynosa, Mexico to the Kuyu people in PNG in powerful ways bringing salvation and transformation to people all by Your grace. Enable us, Lord, to continue to grow up into who you are in all of our lives. Thank you for the evidences of your grace that we see here in your local church. And thank you that you are faithful to finish what you have begun. Thank you, Lord, that some of the most significant work for the kingdom has been done by unknown witnesses who are obedient to you right where they are and where they do not attract much attention. May such a description be said of us. in this place and among your people. Not just in our future, but in our present. For in you, we are a new people set free from the bondage of sin and condemnation, made new in you, forgiven of all our sin, sealed with the Spirit, clothed in your righteousness, brought to life through grace and by faith. We are humbled and grateful to bear your name in all of life. And so strengthen our hands. Deepen our courage and our trust in you as we live as little Christ as Jesus people this week and this year. We want to follow you in all of our lives, Lord Jesus, no matter how countercultural it may be. May you be the one revealed, reflected, and exalted in all things. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Paul writes this in Philippians 1.27. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Enjoy living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ this week. For the one who is worthy laid down his life, took it back up on the third, third day, seated on the throne, reigning and ruling, and we can rest in that, and we can labor in that, and we can work unto him as worship in all of life to him this week.